Just after we recorded this interview, we got news from White Quark that Enmijin's name is now Amaranth. So hi and welcome to another interview for the Zero to ASIC YouTube channel. And today I'm very happy to be joined with Myrtle Sharn. How are you doing, Myrtle? Hi, doing well. Um, yeah, very nice. Very nice to be here today. Yeah, so uh, people probably know you um, from your FPGA work. So you did a lot of work on Project Trellis and NextPNR. How's that been going? Yeah, that's right. And I'm still very much maintainer of NextPNR, continuing to um, look at ways of actually developing developing both, both ASIC and FPGA tooling together and, and maximizing maximizing the combined work on both, both look at looking into the future. So what, has there been any recent um, upgrade? I think you did a like a version release recently, didn't you, on NextPNR? Yeah, that's right. So that had been waiting for a while for a new Yosis release um, because uh, for a long time we were on Yosis 0.9, which was too old for upstream NextPNR. But with, with, with more frequent Yosis releases, it also means we can do uh, linked NextPNR releases. So that's, um, that's an important step for getting NextPNR into the hands of, of distribution packages and generally making it more accessible. And hopefully, um, I believe there are plans for more frequent Yosis releases. So hopefully we can combine them with NextPNR releases as well on a probably not quite such a frequent, but but ultimately regular schedule. And I think I was reading you would had some experimental support for partial reconfiguration. Is that what's what's going on with that? Uh, that's somewhat been somewhat been stalled due to due to other um, other things going on, to be honest. But um, but yeah, that's something that's definitely on on my to do list, and um, been been gradually investigating um, uh, some some more Xilinx support, and also working with uh, Lofty on on their project Mistral, which um, which is Intel support for NextPNDAS. So the most recent most recent change on that was adding support for the um, Intel's LUT RAM primitives, so that can start to work towards building more complex designs. One of the questions we had on Twitter was, is NextPNR dead? So I think we can conclusively say no. <laughs> no, 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 certainly not. In fact, um, just the other day, I was looking at um, going through the NextPNR code, looking at remembering how the placer worked in order to, to experiment with the same algorithms for ASICs. And now I've actually thought of a nice way of refactoring the NextPNR placer as well. So that will be coming in the next few days. Yeah, so you mentioned that you've been not had too much time for it. You've been working on other stuff. So maybe now's the time to talk about some of that other stuff. What have you been up to recently? Yeah, that sounds good. So yeah, um, a project that I've been involved in and I think uh, staff was here talking about a bit earlier is um, starting to get some tape outs up and running using um, Coriolis for place and route in combination with NMyGen for the SOC build and integration and yeah, staff's uh, FlexLib cell library and, and PDK master framework. And you recently had, you were preparing something for the um, eFabulous Skywater Google MPW3, right? Yeah, that's right. So um, there was a lot of excitement there, some quite late nights, but unfortunately a last minute hitch, a density failure on the um, FOM uh, field oxide metal, I, I think that is, but but I may, 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 may be wrong. Um, anyway, we had, a, unfortunately, the uh, last minute failure there meant, meant we didn't make the MPW3 tape out. Dang. So plans for MPW4 mm. then? Yeah, that's right. So um, pretty much the same SOC, but with some improvements to the cell library, some small improvements, tidying up the flow a bit because we're in a bit less of a rush. And yeah, um, trying to increase, increase the density, the amount of... Um, 
amount of diffusion in our in our fill cells and in the cell library in general so that we pass pass that check yeah so i think we just um maybe need to go back and unpack that a little bit so um we had kind of three things there we've got coriolis we've got flex cell and we've got enmigen so yeah that's right um I did talk, you're right, I'd spoke to staff about um, FlexCell. So if you're interested to find out more about that, then you can check that interview. But um, how would you sum that up, Myrtle? Uh, so so the f important thing about FlexCell is that it's a Python-based framework for generating um, ASIC standard cell libraries. And just so very briefly, um, modern digital ASIC design, you don't place and root individual MOSFETs, for example. What you do is you combine MOSFETs into gates, things like NOR gate, NAND gate, flip-flop. And then those gates are like basically boxes that you place and root and synthesize to. And so traditionally, like, um, and creating these cell libraries has been a bit of a black art. And while they're tools that do some of it, um, it's not something that's generally, there's been a kind of um, very sort of production ready open source flow for building a, a cell library across a wide range of processes. So, so FlexCell uses a kind of combination of different approaches in order to get um, relatively efficient cell libraries that can be built for all kinds of processes. So it's starting, I think, for, for things like Sky 130, but hopefully we can move it to smaller processes in the future. So is that kind of the idea that it gives you a bit of freedom and flexibility from whichever PDK you're working with, you can generate your own standard cell library? Yeah, and although we're not quite there at the moment, um, there's some interesting ideas, for example, in terms of um, generating custom-sized cells in order to, to get like a particular trade-off rather than just having a fixed set of cell sizes to choose from. Um, uh, you could, uh, you know, generate them on the fly depending on the demands of your design. Okay. And then normally, I think people who are subscribers to this channel know that the kind of the default tools that we've been using for the um, Google-sponsored free shuttles uh, with eFabulous um, is OpenLane. So that's based on the uh, DARPA-funded OpenRoad kind of core utilities there. Mm -hmm. um, but we had Jean-Paul Chapu, who's the lead architect for Coriolis, do a presentation for OpenTapeOut recently. Um, and that's an alternative uh, RTL to GDS flow, right? That's right. So um, uh, uh, primarily um, in this context, we're actually looking at um, uh, not so much RTL from to GDS, but but synthesized netlist to GDS, because in both the Coriolis and the open lane flows, um, Yosis is used to get from RTL to, to synthesize netlist. And so for both those flows, that first step is pretty much the same. Okay. Uh, so yeah, if you want to find out more about that, then check out Jean-Paul Chapu's uh, talk and demonstration. And then the the other part that you mentioned is using nmygen. Yeah, that's right. So if you're not familiar with nmygen, it's a Python-based framework for generating hardware. It's um it's important to note that what nmygen isn't doing is compiling hard compiling Python directly into hardware, but instead using Python to um to construct construct uh, logic and, and hardware and RTL basically. So what's the advantage then? Of, of using that. So one of the big advantages that it gets you is um, is better metaprogramming capabilities for things like doing, um, resolving things like address buses for system on chips, that kind of integration type task it's well suited to. And it's also because it's a much more modern design than traditional inference-based RTLs. It tends to have um, fewer soundness issues as well. Um, 
and just gen- generally it, it takes advantage of you know being a, a, a greenfield design to fix some of the kind of what you might call bugs in the Verilog standard around things like signedness. Okay. Um, so let's uh, talk a little bit about your the actual design that you um, are hoping to tape out for MPW4. Um, that's in SOC, right? Yeah, so it's just a proof of concept of how our, our different different bits and pieces could integrate together. So it combines a, um, a Lambda SOC uh, RISC-V core, which is a RISC-V core written in NMyGen. Uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> go back. A Minerva RISC-V core, um, which is a RISC-V core written in NMyGen, combined with um, Lambda SOC, which is a system on chip framework in NMyGen. And um, uh, so that's kind of the, the core. And then we have a, a small amount of built-in built in RAM because we don't have any SRAM primitives yet. That's actually just using um, kind of a, basically just synthesized to flip-flops using Yosis. Um, then on the peripheral side, we have uh, Spy Flash um, to boot from, which is using Claire Wolf's Ferrolog core from PicoSoc wrapped in NMyGen. Uh, Hyper RAM for RAM extension, which uses the port of the light hyperbus core to NMyGen. And then um, just the bare minimum peripherals just to do Hello World, so GPIO and UART. And is this going to be Linux capable or what's the... Uh, no, this is going to be more just for running, running simple test programs. Uh, a Linux-capable SSC is probably more of an MP, MPW5 target once we have okay. Vexris 5 up and running, a, a better cell library, and the ability to do more on-chip RAM for things like cache. Okay. Okay, so we've got up on the screen the kind of the top um, level Python that is written in NMyGen. I was wondering if you could talk through it for us. Uh, yeah, sure. So the kind of heart, heart, as I said, is the um, Minerva RISC-V CPU. And um, as with as with many modern CPU cores, the instruction bus and the data bus coming out of the core are separate. In this case, we have an arbiter. That's something that enables a single bus um, to be shared between multiple bus controllers. So that shares the, 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 the main system bus between the instruction and data bus. And then we have a decoder, which enables multiple peripherals to be set on be connected to the same bus, each occupying a different region of addresses. Uh, so, so the CPU is in orange, and then the arbiter and decoder in the coder above in, in yellow and blue. Uh, the next peripheral below the CPU is the spy mem spy um, spy flash interface. That's a memory mapped spy flash interface. So, so um, a read from that bus directly translates into a read from from spy flash. And there's also a small control bus that um, enables things like quad SPI mode. So that adds two buses to the decoder. Following on from the spy flash, we have um, the built-in SRAM. And then um, after that, we have the hyper RAM interface, which is some extra, extra, which is a, a form of external RAM that can be, that um, it's essentially a hybrid between SRAM and DRAM, but, but um, that's connected there to the HyperRAM I/O and to the decoder. After that, we have an async serial peripheral, um, a UART, um, and then a, then a timer, and um, then then we connect both the UART and the timer to an interrupt controller that enables them to interrupt the CPU as needed. And then finally, we've got a small GPIO peripheral. It looks very neat <laughs> when you see it written out like that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's going to be stuff, stuff backing back, 
backing up behind this. Um, so this is like the top level integration, but so it's one of these things where where the top level is neat, but obviously there's a, always going to be a degree of magic underneath making it work like this. So how much of the peripherals and things like that are also written in NMyGen and how much are in some other HDL and then kind of wrapped up to make it work in, in this in context? This, in, in this system on chip, the only peripheral which we've chosen to, to use in Verilog is the spy memory interface. And that's the one from Pico RV32, PicoSoc. Yeah, PicoSoc, that's right. Um, just because it's a, it's a core that I, uh, I, I've used much in the past and it's sort of tried and tested for me. Okay. The um, Hyper RAM core was originally written in old MyGen um, from Litex, but um, I decided, although NMyGen has some compatibility for that, I decided it was it was not a complex core and it was easier to actually rewrite it in NMyGen, or not exactly rewrite it, but just find and replace as needed to upgrade it to NMyGen rather than try and use the compatibility layer. And I think actually we've got a name change coming soon with NMyGen, don't we? I believe that's right. Yes, I believe yeah. White Quark has certainly hinted yeah. hinted at that several okay. times. Yeah, we'll keep you posted, but it's currently still in my gen. Yeah, we'll have to dub the audio if it's changed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. And then I'm just now scrolling down a little bit further in, in the actual source code. Um, mm. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how the memory map is created, because that kind of looks... Like that's quite a helpful thing that gets mostly done automatically. Can you just tell me actually exactly which bit you're where you're, um, you're looking at? I'm on line 161. That instantiates um, the SOC we described earlier with some configuration settings. So actually, at the moment, these addresses are, are picked manually, mainly because you want some um, consistency in your addressing. So it's kind of easier just to pick them manually once and have some software that's going to be potentially changing them several times. Okay. And then would that, um, when you come to actually write firmware for this, would, would this then generate the, the linker script and stuff like that? Yeah, that's right. That's part of Lambda SOC. Uh, it generates header files and linker scripts for the peripherals and for the, for the memory map. Okay. So, um, yeah. So what kind of stuff do you get inside Lambda SOC? I think that might be interesting to know. Uh, so Lambda SOC provides, um, at the moment, a, a wishbone bus interface, um, decoders decoders for the wishbone bus, and um, integration with the Minerva CPU core and the ability to build a, a, simp a simple kind of bootstrap BIOS for that. Okay. Um, and one other question we got from Twitter was from Ipolito Guzman, hi Ipolito. Mm -hmm. Um, talking about how did we implement SRAM? So we've already heard that you actually didn't do that. You didn't use Open RAM. You um, synthesized some memory, just some DFF RAM with Yosis. Yeah, that's are there, right. Are there plans in the future to put more memory on the on the core itself? Yeah. So as part of the cell library project, staff wants to work on 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 Flex RAM, his own memory compiler, and once that's up and running, we'll do a test chip with some memory that's been built using that. Okay. So is the what's is the idea there that you want to get memory as close as possible to the the core? Like, what? Why not just use the um, hyper RAM? 
Uh, so, so the hyper RAM is always going to have higher higher latency because you've got to go through an external interface. Particularly in the case of hyper RAM, it's a fairly high latency interface. And so, even if hyper RAM is used, say, for your main memory, then um, you're still always going to want things like caches and register files to use on chip SRAM. Okay. Um, so how? So what kind of amount of RAM are you aiming for then? I guess. Uh, so on the kind of test chip one, I think we had 512 bytes, but I think with um, with um, kind of a really good memory compiler and a denser, denser cell library, I think maybe up to sort of on the order of eight kilobytes should be doable. And would that still be sticking to 130 nanometers or would you need to go to a smaller? Yeah, so that, that, that that's that's sticking to 130 nanometers. We could potentially do a lot more on a smaller process or with more area available. Okay. Cool. Okay. So, um, any other stuff that you're working on at the moment? Um, nothing of probably of interest to this. I don't think. Yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, I think probably um, adding new FPGA support to NextPNR, taping things out, doing your first ASICs—that's probably quite a lot on the plate already, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's some bits and pieces like uh, yeah, uh, some USSHQ and stuff and things, but it's yeah. not exactly stuff of particular public interest. So yeah. Um, I guess one other thing that I'm interested to know about are what's it like working with ASICs after, you know, your intimate knowledge of how FPGAs work? I guess one of the strangest things is how how, how much more real everything feels. So I'm, I was working on a, on a toy ASIC place so just recently, more as, a, more as a learning exercise than with any particular goals in mind, essentially a port of the next PNR placer to ASIC. And when you're working in the next PNR place uh, everything inside FPGAs is kind of done on arbitrary grid units but then suddenly you port it to ASICs and your wire length is reporting as eight meters and it's actually like a, a concrete unit of measurement rather than just some arbitrary numbers it kind of changes how everything feels a bit eight meters as in like eight real meters of wires yeah that's 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 you know and you know obviously there's going to be some physical length inside an FPGA but you never yeah. really know it because those details are abstracted away whereas yeah in an ASIC, it just really is a real length that's sort of just there. Yeah, when I do um, synthesis I, and uh, with for the ASIC flow, and I might see, okay, I've got 30,000 wires, but I never thought how many meters it would be if I added them all up. Um, yeah. So this is uh, this is actually an estimate of wire length after placement. This is half perimeter wire length. So once it's actually been routed using, say, uh, Steiner trees or whatever, the actual wire length will be a bit higher than that as well. Okay. So any other similarities or differences between the two? Um, I mean, I think um, in many ways, like between standard cell ASICs and FPGAs, there are, there are a good chunk of similarities, particularly on the placement side. On, on the routing side, uh, uh, ASIC routing tends to be split, split up between two steps, global routing, which is kind of finding a rough route. And that uses sort of abstract routing graph, a bit like you might for an FPGA. Detail routing is where ASIC stuff becomes very different from an FPGA because you're physically playing with bits of metal in whatever shape you like rather than just configurable switches. Yeah. And I suppose, because something I found out quite recently was that there's an option, I don't think it's that popular anymore, um, but where you have the bottom layers defining a matrix of MOSFETs and then you basically you just customize it with the metal layers connecting it up. Yeah, so there have been lots of attempts at things like this. Sometimes they even go more than that, and um, 
they they define almost all of the metal as as well and it's just actually just a via layer that you configure and and when you when you're configuring a via layer that's pretty much identical to configuring switches inside an FPGA yeah so then there's there is this kind of middle land in between the two there yeah definitely hmm. okay great okay anything else you want to mention i think that's probably it so yeah excellent great okay Thanks very much for your time, Myrtle, and I'll see you about.